Hello and welcome to The Devil's Party. I'm Anthony Oliveira, PhD, culture critic, dumpster raccoon, and this week we are on the second woe of the, oh gosh, sixth trumpet? Is that? Yes, that is correct. <laughs> Um, uh, sorry for being late. I'm about a week late. It was Halloween. It ate my whole life. If you follow me on Instagram, you saw the pictures. You know why. Um, for those of you who don't, I was dressed as Mysterio. It was quite an amazing costume. I didn't make it. A friend of mine who costumes a lot of the drag queens in Toronto actually made it for me. Um, and it was a huge hit, but it also kept me extremely busy. And when I turned around, suddenly this thing was a week late. So I do apologize. Uh, I also spent the whole weekend recording my Juggernaut episode of Cerebrocast. Uh, that'll be dropping later this week. Uh, it, it was a nine-hour record with Connor. So if you are interested in Kane Marco, the Juggernaut, you want to check that out. We do talk quite a lot about his biblical name and its weird resonances. Um, but this week on The Devil's Party, we're chatting about Revelations 9, 13 to, let me see, 21. Um, we're on the second woe. Uh, you'll remember that as with so many of the sevens in the book of Revelations, this one broke into a four and three, and the back half of the trumpets is about woes. Uh, whoa, the, <laughs> sorry, uh, I don't know if that was a Polly Shore or a Cher, actually. Um, <laughs> uh, the first one you'll remember was the weird scorpion monsters who very notably could not kill anybody but tormented them for five months. The locusts, remember, with all their weird patchwork bodies. This week, uh, the monster attacks continue with a different kind of monster. And I will say, I'm starting to have the experience as we go through these woes of feeling like a dungeon master describing the taxonomy of monsters here. Um, Thankfully, that experience does fade away <laughs> next week uh, with actually what is my favorite reading in all of Revelations. It is kind of the centerpiece of the Dayspring book itself. Um, but this week, we're talking about woes. Um, what is this woe? Well, let's check it out. Then the sixth angel blew his trumpet, and I heard a voice from the, and you may have a note about whether or not there are four here, from the four horns of the golden altar before God. Um, before we even finish this sentence, let's unpack that. Um, so six angels blowing the trumpet and these four horns, that's a little confusing in a moment when we're talking about trumpets. Those are not actually horns like trumpet horns. Those are horns like, um, like a ram might have, or in this case, like an altar might have. Um, Quite a lot of altars in uh, Middle Eastern culture have these kind of, whether they're vestigial or not, this kind of like uh, a jutting uh, things on the sides. Um, and they are often quite ornamentalized in uh, later cultural artifacts, but it's theorized that early on they are literally like the pegs to which you tie um, the sacrifice. So those are the four horns on the altar that are speaking here. Horns, they always get, I always get a footnote that says they symbolize power. That'll be clearer later on. Um, I think it's just supposed to mean the four sides of the altar here. Now we're gonna get four again in a second and you and we'll have a weird resonance back. You'll remember there's the four angels on the four corners of the earth, right? It is hard uh, 
not to imagine that the resonance at least exists for John, that the earth itself is a kind of altar to God, right? At which four angels are on the the corners, right? Um, And again, if you've ever seen images of the Ark of the Covenant, same deal, angels on the corners, right? Um, Okay, so this, on the golden altar before God, saying to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. So the four angels were released who had been held ready for the hour, the day, the month, and the year to kill a third of humankind. What are these four angels of the Euphrates? Nobody knows. Uh, <laughs> they seem to be a Johannine invention. They're, I can find no one who can find an explanation for what they're supposed to be. And the mystery of what they're supposed to be is very often... Um, echoed in the uh, literature. So if you have a source that gives some kind of pass on this, let me know, because uh, I would love to hear it, because mostly people are like, I don't know. In fact, one of the big questions is, uh, that is actually quite divided in the literature, is are these uh, good angels or bad? Now that is basically, as we see at the end of days, the math of who's good and who's bad, in a weird way is breaking down at the metaphysical level, because you are so manifestly the scourge of God, even when you're doing evil, that you're still kind of on the payroll anyway, right? Like, yeah, Satan is going to cause a lot of trouble, but the end math of things is so clear at this point that it hardly seems to matter. Um, But they do seem to be bound, right? They do seem to be trapped by the Euphrates. Uh, And there is a kind of way that John is here echoing uh, language of, for example, remember when he they opened Tartarus, right? When they opened the pit, they unlocked it and these scourges came out. This is another moment of unlocking. Um, they do seem to be like sub-staff below the trumpet angel here though, right? Uh, the angels are really multiplying as we go here. Uh, the second thing to note is this just as a fun bit of lore, the fun way this ball has bounced across the centuries. That list, um, quite interestingly literary idea, right? The the angels who've been held ready for the hour, the day, the month, and the year to kill a third of humankind. The specificity um, of that, the kind of building up uh, to the climax, this increase of time, is obviously supposed to have performed the literary effect both of God's sort of supreme omniscience, his uh, thoughtfulness in planning this kind of horrible vengeance, uh, but also uh, the preciseness of it. Like God has measured every moment of history. It's quite effective at a literary level. At a sense level, it has baffled people for some time because the literalists uh, have bounced this ball in some interesting ways, (laughs) among them thinking actually that what this is saying is how long these people will be allowed to torment. That it's not saying, and the grammar of it is um, kind of uh, not as clear in this translation, but they read it as meaning uh, that they will be allowed to attack for a year, a month, a day, and an hour. 
which if you want the math done for you, is 391 days. Uh, that's kind of hilarious to think that that's what it means, but kind of neat. Like, there's kind of something fascinating about the number 391, um, just as, like, a function of that that kind of math. <laughs> it's also, you'll note an increase from the five months the locust monsters had, and they will kill a third of humankind. You'll remember the locusts were specifically not allowed to kill anybody. There is a kind of way um, that will become explicit at the end of this reading that God is increasing both the intensity and fatality of these torments, these woes, specifically to affect a kind of uh, torturous breakdown of the human psyche so that they repent, right? That is the logic that is here explicit by the end of this week's reading. Um, it's getting worse and worse so that you will leave your sins, but their hearts will also be hardened and they won't do that. We'll see that in a moment. Again, another spectacularly literary effect here that even in translation is really very effective. The number of the troops of Calvary was 200 million, uh, which you will have variously translated as 200,000 thousand or two myriads of myriad. Um, all of those do equal 200 million. I did check the math for you. The idea is like a supreme uh, hugeness, right? 10,000 times 10,000, a myriad times a myriad is the most poetic way. You can sort of have a kind of uncountable countedness. Um, but I love the next phrase that we get. I, I heard their number. Uh, that sounds like it's like a vision thing, right? Like someone whispered what the number was to him. No, it's the sound of their hoofbeats. He hears how many of them there are. It's really quite effective and astonishing. Um, and this, oh, before we continue, I didn't talk about the fact that they're trapped under the Euphrates, that they are horse beings, and that they are killing a third of humanity. Um, all of that tends to point, ding, 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 you could probably guess by this point, to the Parthian Empire. Uh, usually when people try to interpret what this means, that's where they tend to land. Um, I don't want to overestimate that, because there is a tendency to try to historicize John's visions that I think should be read in a very purely abstract um, a historical way. He wants the effect to be like, history will do something. But it's hard to miss the math here, right? Like, the Parthian Empire is across the Euphrates, which is the eastern boundary, hard boundary, of the Roman Empire. It's hard to move troops across it. Uh, it's been kind of stalemated um, as where the Parthian Empire ends and the Roman Empire begins. It's also historically at a kind of like, almost like, I don't know, I, I don't want to say legendary, but like, uh, when Abraham is promised a kingdom, it, it's, its eastern boundary is the Euphrates, right? This is the land promised. Um, so in either case, we are seeing an invasion, either against whether you want to think of it as Roman powers, or kind of like historically Israelite powers, right? Like, the borders are being invaded. And of course, it's very hard to hear the phrase a third of humanity and not think of Rome, which is like the historical um, way that they thought of the number, the size of Rome as an empire. Uh, one of the petals of that kind of tripartite uh, imagination, the medieval imagination, but here already kind of emergent of how the world works, right? There's the European petal, the African petal, and the Asian petal with uh, Jerusalem at its center, right? Is the, the classical medieval model. Um, 
that that kind of Parthian thing is enhanced by this kind of uh, parti-colored, multicolored armor that they're wearing, which is the next detail we get. Uh, the riders wore breastplates the color of fire and of sapphire and of sulf- uh, and of sulfur. Um, depending on your translation and including the King James, King James that I used in the episode, you might have some version of hyacinth, jacinth uh, for sapphire there. It's the same. The idea here is red as fire, this kind of a poetic thing happening, red as fire, blue as sapphire, jacinth, hyacinth, um, and yellow as sulfur, right? Very, very beautiful. Um, combination. Although my uncle, <laughs> I remember, I, t- I talked about this before, my uncle once read this at a family gathering we were having, and his, I remember his face going white, and him being like, oh my god, it's describing the Americans. <laughs> uh, the American description kind of continues in the next bit. Um, uh, the heads of the horses were like lion's heads. Now not- notice that all this description is of the steeds. We do not hear anything about these riders, actually. Oh, I should mention, in case you haven't You've forgotten. The Parthians are notable cavalrymen. Like, their army is very famously um, uh, made up of horsemen. Uh, And they also shoot arrows, which you can maybe read as the the tail sting that happens later in this passage. Um, You can make of this what you will. Uh, Anyway, uh, their heads, the horses like lion's heads, and fire and smoke and sulfur came out of their mouths. Um, Uh... A lot of crackpotty people in the 20th century are like, oh my god, tanks. He was describing tanks, right? Um, sure. I mean, you get that as early. Actually, I can even think of a few examples in the Renaissance when cannons are being invented, right? It's like, oh, he foresaw these kind of steeds, with, especially in the Renaissance where you would mint these things with sort of decorative heads if you had the, the energy and time, although they weren't good for the actual um, mechanical function of a cannon, Uh in the Renaissance, these things are secondary. <laughs> I wonder, and I'm tempted to check whether or not when they build that super cannon in Paradise Lost, whether Milton purposely echoes any of this language. He probably does, especially this sort of belching fire language. Uh, anyway, for the power of the horses in their mouths and in their tails, their tails are like serpents having heads, and with them they inflict harm. This also gets like, oh, that's the... Um, what do you call it? The little thing you light on fire in a cannon? That thing. Sometimes that gets read as that. Uh, again, some people were like, oh, those are the arrows the Parthians shoot behind them after they've charged through your enemy lines. I don't know. What is John's intent? I think his intent is actually the one I already described, which is to give you kind of a scary Dungeons and Dragons monster that God's going to send after you, right? Um and in some way, it's interesting the way that this passage actually has like a quite minimal amount of interpretation uh, in the literature. And almost all of it is uh, packed into this last paragraph. The rest of humankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the work of their hands or give up worshiping demons and idols of gold and silver and bronze and stone and wood, which cannot see or hear or walk. It's like a great, it has like this kind of um, elemental callback quality to the really Old Testament prophets to it. Like you can feel um, his contempt for idolatry in this that feels very specifically, very specifically Jewish and honestly not very specifically Catholic. (laughs) 
<laughs> in this room alone, I can see several idols made of gold and silver and bronze and stone and wood, even as I sit here recording this, um, which cannot see or hear or walk. It's like this great... Milton really loves this section because he loves the idea of um, the kind of riddle of an idol, something that has a foot but cannot walk, has an eye but cannot see, uh, has an ear but cannot hear, right? There's something... Uh, fascinating about those. Um, but the next sentence is the one that gets overladen in historical interpretation. And they did not repent of their murders or their sorceries or their fornication or their thefts. Um, a lot of those words get uh, wrenched in meaning as they are uh, interpreted and translated. The word there for fornication is pornea, um, fornication is not a bad translation of that. Uh, unchastity is another one that gets used a lot. Uh, but the one that's missing actually in this translation is pharmacon. Uh, pharmacon is the word, um, it's literally, as you might expect, it's the word drugs. Uh, and it does, it's the word they're rendering here as sorceries, actually. Uh, because it can mean, like, your potions, I guess. Uh, but it is the word that, uh, it just means drugs. It has it has positive and negative valences in the same way the word drugs does for us. Um, but in many, many, many renderings I encountered of this and interpretations, particularly the Catholic ones, this had footnotes of, like, such as drugs, such as abortifacients, contraceptives, and others. Um, which I think is their way of thinking about, but still being scared to explicitly say sort of like antiretroviral drugs. Um, the Catholic Church has always been hesitant to go all the way as to suggest those are bad uh, officially, but I certainly encountered many uh, priests who said otherwise when I was a kid. Um, and this passage gets used a lot in these kind of more, what shall we call it, uh, less charitable, less accurate, uh, more pointedly cruel translations that you might see, for example, put up on a placard at a protest, right? Um, but in context here, I think, is the larger thing to think about. Uh, it is kind of a late and sort of shocking reveal here to learn that these woes are supposed to be causing people to repent. Um, because both as a reader now, and I think as a person experiencing them, I feel like they would be particularly hard to, uh, coordinate into a meaning. Like, I feel like this makes me less likely to, for example, turn to God if I was being eaten by a man-sized locust or attacked by a horse with a fire-breathing lion head. Um... There is, seems to be no, <laughs> there's no moment of communication, for example, that that's what the point of these things are. It seems to be to just create so horrific an existential horror on the world that people will just give up in completely abjected terror uh, that any power deliver them. And um, it is hard, I think, particularly with these two woes, to see in them what extent John intends anything other than kind of a horror movie, actually kind of like a sci-fi epic 
quality where it's just like, well, then the bad guys came. And uh, to be honest, it's effective in that extent, right? Like this is uh, very dramatic. And as I've said, the literary effects, even across a gulf of translation in 2000 years, are still readily apparent. Um, And I don't think we should discount those. For example, there is something kind of delightfully imaginative about these monsters, (laughs) But I do quite readily confess that the broth is thin in this second woe. (laughs) Um, But I do think the next section, although it is, in terms of meaning, kind of the hardest to parse, and in terms of, like, what its function is in the larger work hard to parse, um, is one of my favorites. So I'm really looking forward to what gets called at various moments, this section usually gets called the Infernal Calvary, um... Or the the next one is very often called like the Great Interval, uh, because it is this strange pause in the action of revelations uh, that has sort of these extremely beautiful magisterial images in them, but seem to break from the structure of the larger piece. Um, So I'm very excited to get to those. I am also very excited to get to the reader comments, which I'm going to do right now. Um, If you're enjoying this podcast or you want to take part in those and or you want to take part in those uh, or you just want to support me, go check out patreon.com slash Mia Koopa, M-E-A, K-O-O-P-A, or just uh, search for my name, Anthony Oliveira, on Patreon. I'll be tackling those right now. Um, And otherwise, I will see you next week when things get weird and actually kind of sexy uh, as our uh, poet, as our seer, um, suddenly gets in on the action. Okay, thank you so much. Be brave enough to be kind. Bye-bye. (laughs) Bye-bye.